There are very few communities that aren't set up to be sales funnels. And what that does is mean that you commercialize too quickly. That's not to say that communities can't make money, but I think you have to be really clear on what the purpose is. The self-promotion thing, I think, is a really interesting double-edged sword because we live in a world where there's too much self-promotion, but there's also too many people who don't know how to celebrate their own achievements. But I think there isn't enough role modeling on how to do that in a nice way. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you're going to learn how to create a community that doesn't turn up into a cesspit of spam and pyramid schemes and affiliate sales and gurus and stuff. My guest today is the founder of Upworld, formerly known as Copy Club, a marketing community that started in 2016, so almost 10 years ago, that has more than 3,000 members. My guest today is also consulting part-time in brand and marketing. She held a lot of jobs in the food industry, weirdly, so that probably tells a lot about her. A marketing powerhouse as well. I'm very proud to be to have her on the podcast based on all the stuff she's done. Anyway, Lottie Unwin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, as I said in the intro, 99%, that's my own percentage, of communities, in particular creative marketing communities out there, are really like, what tends to happen is it starts small, it's great, people love it, and then it starts becoming this pool of just self-promotion and spam, and then there's too many members, no one likes it, and then everyone leaves, and then, and then that's that. So why is that happening, do you think? Well, why is it going wrong? Yeah, why, why are all of those communities turning into that? I think they're often founded for the wrong reasons. So I think there are very few communities that aren't set up to be sales funnels. And what that does is mean that you commercialize too quickly. That's not to say that communities can't make money, but I think you have to be really clear on what the purpose is. The self-promotion thing, I think, is a really interesting double-edged sword because we live in a world where there's too much self-promotion, but there's also too many people who don't know how to celebrate their own achievements. But I think there isn't enough role modeling on how to do that in a nice way. So, for example, we have a in our Slack community, we have a, a channel called Friday Shoutouts where we encourage our members to celebrate other people. That creates a very different tone to an environment where you can self-publicize and give yourself one of those LinkedIn clap statuses in a community. So I think they're not looked after, they're built for the wrong reasons, and they try and grow too quickly. You said they're grown for the wrong reasons and specifically because they are created as a sales funnel to bring them to another offer and, and be your friend stuff. Tell me more about this. Why is that a wrong approach? It gives you KPIs for the project that are about lead generation and are about scale because scale becomes the leading metric for the lagging metric, which is number of conversions. And so if that's why you're setting out to do it and those are incentives, you'll build in one direction. If you're like the other school of community builders who are like a wonderful, potentially disillusioned group of like <laughs> messiahs who have this like strange place in the world where they build communities, not primarily to make money, but primarily to give back. And it's a really odd way to give back because there are loads of charities more in need than like community building for the audiences we all talk to. But if you're doing that, then your incentives are about engagement and your incentives are about like the emotional response from the members. And so that creates a very different outcome. 
You seem to have been able to do the almost in between. I don't know which way you are like more towards, but like to simplify, maybe in the middle a bit. But there's something that I found very interesting. So please confirm if that's true. But I'm sure when people listen to the intro, when I said 3000 members, you're charging 20 pounds at the minute or at the time we're recording this episode anyway. So it's, I'm not that branded. That's 60,000 pounds a month. Not really because you'd have. We have 1200 members. 1200. We have 6,000 in our newsletter audience. Right. To correct. So those are the numbers. Mm -hmm. We make money from it, for sure. We don't make a profit from running the community. Okay. So how do you make money? So within the community, we make money from our membership fees. We pay three full-time people to run that community. Community management is a proper job and it requires real talent and skill. I can see you nodding because anyone who's come close to it is like, yes, hell yes, yes, this is hard. Yeah, fuck yeah, it's really hard. Our objective for that is that it breaks even. And for a long time, I ran it at a loss until I had this like weird moment of like, why am I donating? How much were you losing per month, roughly? It was a long time ago. It was when the community was really small. So the numbers wouldn't have been significant. But the point was, I was contracted. I was freelancing to bring in contract work to pay for an assistant to run the community that wasn't generating any income. That doesn't make sense. No, but like... I think it's important to paint a picture. How much are we talking about that you were losing, even if it was at the beginning? Well, say I was paying her £1,500 a month and it was generating £200 a month, so I was losing the difference. Okay, there's a reason why I'm asking you all of this is because that tends not to be talked about too much. It's easier now for you to talk about it because you've grown, you've done a lot, you learned a lot, but people don't realize that at the start or even in the middle or at the end, it's fucking tough. And yes, similarly for the podcast, I've run it at a loss for ever until recently as well. And that's what it takes. Unfortunately, it's never like the perfect fucking hockey stick growth that everyone is talking about on LinkedIn. It's always more complicated than that. It takes always longer than you think. And so that's why I'm curious. So 1200 pounds a month. Yeah, which I was generating through my freelancing work in order to offset the downside in the other part of what I do. So I've always looked at all my projects as a portfolio. And so long as those in collection get me to a point where I can pay my rent and the numbers stack up, then that makes sense. So what's important is today that we ask our members to pay a contribution that allows us to keep the community going and maintain the standard. And I would love to get it to the point where we had enough engaged members that, that there was economies of scale and that could be profitable. So I'm not saying the ambition isn't for it to be profitable, but I'm very comfortable with the reality that it's not. So let's clarify the business model a bit before we go into a deeper dive into it. So you have the community side where folks pay a monthly fee. Yeah. But then you also have two other revenue streams from it, right? We have three other revenue three, streams. Okay. So within Upworld, there are two others. And then I have a second business, which is interlinked. So the community, as we talked about, the membership bit breaks even. We have a small revenue line of sponsorship that over time, I think, will grow. We run courses where our members and non-members can pay to take part in a course. And that is a profitable revenue stream. And then we have a team called Matchmaking, which is our approach to recruitment, which is strengthened by our relationship to the community. So we have incredible relationships that mean that when people are hiring, they get in touch with us. And it means that if people are unhappy in their jobs, we know about it. So the community makes us better recruiters than we think we could be without it. Nice. And then I have a whole other business called Brand Hackers, where we run outsourced marketing teams for startups. So there's a lot going on. 
Yeah. Are you happy? Right now, I'm tired. I'm bone tired. I'd say I've had a couple of weeks where I keep talking to my friends about these big girl weeks where I feel like the bad stuff has been really bad and the good stuff has been really good. So the balance is still neutral, but I'm just tired by the scale of it all. Yeah, thanks for that honest answer. It's uh, I completely relate, completely. To go back to the uh, community management piece and when I was nodding about it, I've learned over the years that I'm very bad at it. By community management in my head, what it means to me is like managing a Slack group, managing a like a forum based on the internet, stuff like that. I just can't wrap my head around it. And I've tried a few times and always like I stick to it for two weeks and then I fucking hate it. It's not me. But I can speak to people all day long. I can do group coaching all day long. I can do a lot of stuff all day long that others can't. But yeah, fuck this community management stuff. As you said, it's an art. It's a big skill. It's rough. So three people full time doing that for yeah. you. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. Okay. So I think we've described the context of today, but now let's go back a bit in time. 2016, you were working and you're feeling a bit alone in the marketing world. Um, mm -hmm. Is that right? So what did you start doing? Yeah, so I'd left P&G where I was like a very happy baby brand manager walking around the big office in my suit, looking at slides basically having the time of my life, but being way too high energy that I was just bouncing off the walls. Like I didn't, I clearly didn't have a career path there because all the coaching was trying to make me fit this like proctoid box, which is how they talk about it. And Ooh. I was never going to be that. But I loved the training. I loved having this network of other people who were doing my job because I was working in fragrance in one corner of the building and then I'd have the people on Tampax and the people on Fairy Liquid and the people on like professional cleaning products, all of whom were thinking about the same stuff as me. I got so much out of that. So then I went to go and work at Propercorn, where I was head of marketing, head of marketing in the biggest inverted commas, like given a grandiose job title because I had to be paid slightly more than the people around me, way out of my depth. Everyone knew that I wasn't up for doing the job, but no one could say it out loud because then we'd all understand that this thing was made on hot air. Um, and I had a bit of an ego because I was like, I've just run Dolce & Gabbana fragrance media budget. I spent 14 million on TV last year. I could sell some popcorn. And I really couldn't sell popcorn. I really didn't know how to do it. Why not? Because you can't put a TV ad up and hope that volume increases. My budget was 50K a year. So, well, one, my budget was 50K a year. Two, popcorn was for the cinema. Popcorn wasn't a snack. So I was inventing a new category. Secondly, my whole stakeholder infrastructure completely changed. So I was used to being in a business where everyone was recruited for thinking the same way and taught to speak in a particular language, which was one pages with loads of acronyms and slides with a particular template. And then I turned up in a startup where I was working for a entrepreneur who'd quit law school and who'd had an idea. And I was working alongside a head of design who was creatively brilliant, but wasn't going to read a document. And I like didn't have the language. It was like moving continents. Lots of reasons why I didn't know how to sell popcorn. I also hadn't actually been taught how to think. What do you mean? If you are put in a small business and your job is to sell more bottles of beer and you have to sell 2,000 more bottles of beer in the next month, you have to do proper marketing which is like, you have to do the five pillars. You have to think about where you're going to position this, what the price is going to be, who you need involved. And these were questions I hadn't asked before. 
because my brief in a big business had been evolve what we did last year a little bit to grow one more percent. And those are the people that you, you need to reach and these are the channels that tend to work and everything. Yeah, and here's a world-class media agency who will plug your sales data in some like massive thing that will crunch it and tell you what shows to buy your TV on. And that's not to say that there isn't a huge amount to learn in big business, but it's just a very different skill set to what I learned. Yeah. The way we both understand the term marketing, marketing is not promotion or just communication. As you mentioned, there's way more than that. It's just the four Ps or whatever you want to call it. Um, that's very interesting. Thanks for being so honest about it. I just want to go back to a little comment you made because that I can recognize myself in it. You said you had <laughs> a huge ego. You said yeah. it in the past. So yeah. you don't think you have an ego anymore? No. Why not? I really don't think I have an ego anymore. I think I just have such a deep appreciation for how much I have to learn. Where does that come from? From being out of my depth all the time. Like I was having a chat with my head of people this morning and we were dealing with something quite difficult. And she said to me, my brain keeps going into like all of the postmortem of this. And I really want to start like writing up our notes and what we've learned from this. And then I took a breath and was like, look, I actually don't think I can learn anymore this week. I don't think I've got any more capacity. And she was like, yeah, fuck, I completely agree. Like learning's for next week. And it's Tuesday. And I just feel like we we reach that point. It's actually Wednesday, which shows the state of mind I'm in. Like, I don't know. I literally don't know what day of the week it is. I, I just know I that I'm done. You. Like I know believer. that I'm like literally up to my eyeballs. And I think that's the most humbling feeling you have so many times over in roles like mine, where I'm attempting to be CEO of four different business units at once, having done zero of those things before. That's something I've said before, which is, I don't believe one can call themselves an actual marketer until they have to market something with no fucking budget or very, very little budget and they have the cards in their hands. Like it's up to them to decide. I've seen a lot of folks who I know it might be controversial. I'm not saying you should not call yourself a marketer at all. I'm just saying I don't think you can really, unless you've experienced that moment of running your own business or having something that is very close to you revenue wise try your hardest to find fucking people to buy and try to convince them in some way, shape or form via email or whatever. The rest is easier because I used to work in big business as well. And it's not the same feeling. It's not the same emotions. I agree that they are completely different. I think I have a real admiration for what it takes to get anything done within a big business. And I agree that's not marketing, but I think that's like internal stakeholder management internal, internal marketing selling. as well right selling the thing yeah. internally you yeah, know and I, I come across yeah, yeah. startup marketeers all the time whose skills there are so lacking they like get tripped up in a totally different way so i think it's just a recognition of how ludicrously different the roles are yeah yeah absolutely absolutely but it's more like a almost a political role almost a social role first and and the marketing knowledge comes second because if you're liked if you're able to really sell your ideas or make sure that you don't get in trouble, you can go really far. Yeah. Well, when I left Procter & Gamble, I remember saying this in my interview that I felt like I was in the foreign office. I was a diplomat. So my job was to move paper between a local business unit, my line manager, a Geneva-based global delivery team and a fashion house in Milan. And so I was just like... I was just managing high-level bureaucracy, which was a great skill set, and I've used it for the rest of my career. I'm so pleased I have it, but I wasn't thinking about how to build a brand. Yeah. 
But so that's what I'm implying. It's the word marketer implies applying marketing knowledge and implies, as you mentioned before, the four Ps and stuff like that. So that's what I'm saying. But I'm glad you said all of this. So we are in 2016 and you were this kind of corporate go-getter, enthusiastic because you're young. Not that you're not young, but you know. Oh, I was so enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. I see myself in the in your story because it was exactly the same. The start yeah. of my career, I was like so energetic and just willing to work all hours and I was like all in doing anything. Now I'm just lazy and I'm prioritizing <laughs> what I like and just think of myself. Yeah. I understand. So 2016 and you, what did you create? So what was the very first version of that community? It was a supper club. The very first version was a dinner. So I turned up at Propicorn, was really lonely, was having this horrible crisis of confidence, which was completely deserved, but was affecting the whole way I thought about myself. So it was way more existential than just having a bad day at work. I take all of that home with me and I didn't really know who I was. And so I started meeting other heads of marketing or heads of brand in startups, like anyone I could find. So one of our early members was my ex-boyfriend's best friend's like rugby teammate. So I was just literally WhatsApping everyone. I assume WhatsApp exists there. We'll go with that. To say, um, I was contacting, I can't remember how I did it, probably Facebook Messenger, to say, does anyone know anyone who has a, you know, who is a head of brand or head of marketing? Meeting these people for coffee, they, at the end, I'd be like, okay, let me get, let, let me buy breakfast. Thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated this. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? I've had a really great time. Can we do this again in a month? These coffees went on. I just kept thinking like one day someone's going to tip me off and say, look, every Thursday, last Thursday of the month, we go to this pub in Covent Garden and we all stand around and welcome, come on in. You're safe here. And no one did it. And so I moved past the they're not inviting me to the point of like, maybe this doesn't exist. So I booked a table at a restaurant, invited all the people I'd met over that last few months. I was so nervous about it. I booked a really nice place. Why were you nervous? Oh, just because it felt so vulnerable to say, it's like hosting a birthday party. You just don't think anyone's going to come. Like, I don't think for any complex reason, I think it's just like that absolute fear of people saying, I didn't mean it when I said that sounded like a good idea. So I had a dinner and we ended up having drinks. And one of the guys was like, I'm proposing to my girlfriend next week. And it, you know, it got really personal really quickly. And we felt like we'd really bonded. And then the days after the email thread was kicking off and people were asking each other questions and someone started saying like, when's the next one? And I was like, okay, next one. Cool. We'll do another one. And it just went from there. And so then the sticky note on my desktop of the number of the email addresses just kept growing as people said, oh, my mate Louis would love this. Here's his email address. And then I started a MailChimp and then I did some breakfast, which had a bit more of a concept than the dinners that were literally just like, let's sit around and talk about something. And then I moved abroad. So then I thought I'd close the whole thing. So this was a few years of doing it in London on a Sunday night, sending out some emails, not making a penny from it. I started charging people. I just started asking people to reserve their spot for like three pounds because the dropouts were really annoying. And then that would pay for my meal. So that was the monetization strategy, was just like not have to buy my own dinner. <laughs> it was advanced at this point. And then I moved to India. Oh, wow. Yeah, I spent two and a half years living in Delhi. And I assumed that would be the end of it. Because I had this view that everyone was showing up because they owed it to me. So I just thought, if I don't show up, it'll just disappear. But I kept going, 
on WhatsApp for as long as I thought it had steam. And so I carry on organizing the events and I just message someone I knew and say, can you go to Pratt and pick up the pastries? Can we borrow your meeting room? You're going to be the first to arrive. Can you just make sure everyone gives each other a hug? And it just was really informal and it kept growing. And then alongside that, I went freelance, which was when I begun to see a way that I could build this, what started off as a bit of a portfolio existence and is now quite a big team with hands in many pies. So I want to go into direction that you might not enjoy because you're tired and whatever, but I still want to go there because there's a few times where you mentioned something which is around this kind of lack of confidence. So the tension between you said first that you were like big ego and now and then when you tell the story of that community, you basically say people are showing up because they are doing you a service and they wouldn't really show up otherwise. I can hear that. So is it still something going on today? Or did you feel like you've solved that issue of not feeling confident in yourself, your ability? I've always been confident in my ability to build connection. So that's where the ego, which is like, people aren't going to come for dinner because I'm not there, comes from my knowledge that if I'm at a dinner and my job is to host my God, I can host. I know, I feel it, I do this process where I dig and I can pull my shoulders up and I can go into being the shiniest, most sociable person for two hours and then I will get on the tube and I'll be like shot. So I've always known I can do that, which is why I had that confidence that if I was there, it would be okay. But this feeling that the idea in and of itself wasn't compelling enough that people would show up without me. Confidence now... Am I confident now? I'm very proud of what I've done. And I take real forward momentum from that. But if you ask me about my three-year plan, I crack. Like I don't, all of that bigger stuff, critically underconfident with. Okay. Okay. So you're linking lack of confidence in the future or not necessarily know where to go. Where I no, 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 it's skill sets. Skill set, okay. It's like long-term strategy, not a skill set I'm comfortable with. Okay, maybe because you don't need it as well. Like maybe it's not a critical skill. We've um, been okay for a while. To do a lot. I used to overly strategize in the long term and do documents to like to plan and plan. But I realized it was just a solution to my anxiety. It was just a remedy to my anxiety to make myself feel like it's okay. You have all the scenarios thought about and... When I stop doing that, I stop planning and just fucking do things with a bit of reflection. So anyway, to go back to that confidence, I'm asking you this because, and thank you for being transparent about it, because again, in the marketing world, it's so easy to just see the LinkedIn version, Instagram version of marketer's life without realizing the behind the scenes. The other thing that is important here is that you're a woman. And I've noticed, and I've talked to many, and I've noticed a difference in confidence in their abilities versus men, specifically white men with a beard like me, right? It's like tech bros, bro marketers, whatever. And I do notice see the difference nowadays where it does seem more difficult for women to actually be assertive and do the stuff you're saying, you're doing. Do you disagree? I can see you're disagreeing. I don't know about the gendered thing. I also, I just don't want to typecast myself as underconfident. Like, I think I am pretty confident. I think I am pretty assertive. 
Now, it's confidence of you in the past. It's not as of today, uh, but like... Yeah, and I think that's because I never had a big vision. I was finding my way through a journey, which I still feel I'm doing. Yeah, which everyone is doing. No one fucking has a fucking clue. Yeah, I think there are people who pretend they do better. And I have never, never pretended to have anything sorted that I don't have sorted. And to your point on LinkedIn, like, if anyone follows me on LinkedIn, that is not a story of how I'm nailing it. That is a very open portrayal, sometimes too raw, of how things are going. I think there's a lot, I was at a female founders event last night, and I think there's a lot of rhetoric around imposter syndrome, and which obviously, it, that's not like to dismiss it, it's really real, but I actually don't have imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't imply you did. Yeah, I just think, I think it's interesting, I just want to make sure that I'm not coming across as crippled with confidence, because that's really not my problem, delightfully. Definitely not. Your problem is burnout, you're working too much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Easy enough to see. When it comes to that community, so it started into this dinner thing. It was very casual, no pressure. You went to India for three years and a half. You thought it would die, but it didn't. So then you went back to London? I came back to London because of COVID. Okay. You would have stayed? Yeah. And why did you... I was very uh, committed. Can I ask you why you went to India? Yeah, an ex-boyfriend. So I was with my ex for nine years. He and I had always planned to move abroad together. He got a job in Delhi, which was like completely agreed between us. It was the best thing that's ever happened to me. We went out together and nine months in, ended it. Having set, packed up everything, moved around the world. But I'd scaled my business there, found a flat, set up life, made new friends and just had this new sense of being able to like tear up the rule book and redesign how I wanted to live. So it gave me real strength to be able to make that decision. So I then stayed and did some part-time work as marketing director of India's largest wine brand, which is definitely a story for another day because that was a whirlwind, while I was building Copy Club and got basically got it to a fairly healthy place where I had an assistant and we were like had a steady flow of contracting work and the community was growing and we'd launched a paid model for the community and we were doing bits of recruitment. And then COVID hit and we newsletter doubled. So we had more signups to our newsletter in two weeks than I'd had in five years. And all of our contract work disappeared and we were working on 24 live roles that went down to zero in 48 hours. And I just looked at my bank account and was like, how long can I keep me and her going? And the answer was a few months and committed that we do everything we can to help the community in that time. So our community were completely obliterated by COVID. Like 70% were directly financially affected, whether that was them losing income or their partner losing income. So that was a really pivotal moment for us. And then I got sent, I, then I left India thinking it'd be for six weeks, left all my stuff in a flat there, came back with a suitcase. And two years later, I got a visa. So two years of paying rent on a flat in Delhi, living out of a suitcase in London, during which I, yeah, super scaled the team. So we went from two to probably about 15 in that time, in that year, year or two post the first lockdown. And then, yeah, early last year, went back to Delhi to collect my stuff and say goodbye. So let me go back to that little thing that you just said, where it's a story for another day. I don't like that. So. You're going to have to tell me one thing at least <laughs> about that experience. What is the biggest, why was it a whirlwind? What's the biggest? Okay, you need the context of my life at the time. So I've just come out 
of, I was just going through a nine-year relationship ending and then coming out the other side of the breakup. I was working half the time for myself, building Copy Club, and then 50% of my time, I was marketing director for this large Indian company. But wine is 2% of the Indian alcohol market. So it's like being a sake marketing director in Europe, which is the coolest brief ever, right? No one knows what wine is. I was in focus groups where people would talk about how they knew what wine was, but they didn't drink it because they didn't live in a chateau and they didn't have a ball gown. And that was like... That was a trial barrier. A genuine trial barrier was like, oh, I don't own a chateau. Yeah. How the fuck do you change people's mind? You can't really. Yeah, exactly. So you need to find how, people how who live in chateaus already. And so to the point of like, what is, <laughs> yeah, secondary to like the Indian ball gown market. Yeah. How do you change perceptions of the category? So back to what we were saying earlier about what is real marketing. In some ways, it was the most exciting job ever because that was real marketing. And then the other half of the job was this internal stakeholders piece that I hadn't done since P&G, but I was operating in a culture I didn't understand with a really clear code of conduct that was like another language to me. And I just couldn't do it. I know how to grow that brand and I knew how to grow that brand. And I know that I had moments with the board where I was like, I was really there in terms of them understanding that I knew what the answer to this was. And then I had moments where I just completely failed to do the internal sales, to do the bureaucracy, to bring people along the journey with me. And it was just such an incredibly stressful time. Examples of what I would call workplace bullying three times an hour. And that's just, that's just a different culture. That's just my ethical code of conduct completely juxtaposed to a different way of doing business. But my team there would say to me, I had a really amazing team who were teaching me everything as I was teaching them who would say to me, like, we don't care. We get hit at school. This is, we're in classes of 100 students. This is completely normal to us. But I just couldn't handle it. So I was fired. <laughs> so you said you knew, you knew how to grow that brand. And I, again, okay, so that could take a long time to explain. But if you had to summarize, what would have been the way to get to those, to increase the sales of, of wine in a country where people think you need to be to live in a chateau to drink it. Distribution strategy and use that to drive trials. So loads and loads and loads of promo offers on a single glass of wine to build familiarity. Removing, like actively challenging the stereotypes that exist around wine. So people don't have corkscrews, so use a screw cap. People don't have wine glasses, so make branded tumblers that can be used for other things. And then pricing strategy, just don't price it in line with export. It needs to be accessible. It's literally like the fundamental stuff. Just take this insight, which is that it's an inaccessible category, which is laden, laden with European cues, and that those cues are helpful because everyone understands it's premium, but reposition that in a way that's accessible. It was probably better articulated back in the day. So going back to the community, it sounds like covid helped you in a sense, helped to build the business in a sense, because you had this kind of, all of those marketers stuck at home. Oh yeah. Not like a bit, like the people that benefited from COVID were PPE manufacturers and communities. It was a phenomenal time for community because we finally realized that this stuff matters. I'd been kind of written off as like a bit soft before COVID. It's like, oh, that community thing, like that's really sweet, but like I'm really busy doing my day job. And then when no one had a community because no one was going to work anymore and everyone was really worried about job security, lo and behold, we were quite useful. You went from two to three like to 15. So what type of people did you hire? 
we hired across our different revenue streams one at a time. So we had some people for matchmaking who had recruitment experience. We hired some people for Brand Hackers, which is our consultancy offering. And every time we had more work than we could handle, it became very self-evident we needed another person. The growth plan has been very organic. It's felt very secure and clear. There have been some more experimental hires more recently, which has been like a luxury of being a little bit bigger. But in the early days, it was just hand to mouth, just like needing more, just needing more hands. So your community originally was called Copy Club. Yeah. And recently, you've renamed, rebranded, although the visual identity is very similar. So why that change? Why did you feel the need to do it? There are fundamental problems with the word copy and the word club. Okay. So let's start with copy. (laughs) So let's go through them both. Copy makes it sound like we're just for copywriters. Yes. I mean, that's what I always thought. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. I have to explain twice a day and have done for five years that we're not just for copywriters. The name copy was about the idea of copying the person next to you. And it came from the first dinner where people had said, it was so nice to be able to sit and talk to someone who I thought had nothing in common with me, but actually was doing stuff at a particular channel that was really interesting or maybe think differently about something. And I was like, oh, cool, copying. And at P&G, we had this thing called copy lunches where we'd go and watch Super Bowl ads and talk about them. I've no idea why that was called copy lunch, but that's what it was called. And I was chatting to a mate who'd been to the first dinner and I said, he was like, you should give it a name. And I said, it's a bit like copy lunches. And we talked about the copying thing and then we were like, copy club, that sounds nice. And it took that long. Me telling that story is how long I spent thinking about it because I didn't think it was going to be a thing. So the copywriting thing is a big problem. I get asked to edit blogs a lot. I can edit your blog, but like, honestly, there are many people who are better placed to edit your blog than I am. And I do quite a lot of other stuff. So copy was a problem. Club is a problem because we do have a club. In the conversation we were having earlier about the membership numbers, there are loads of numbers that swim around because it's really confusing as to what we're defining. So the club should be the number of people who pay a membership. That's currently around 1,200. The world, which is where this new language becomes more helpful, is all the people who are involved in what we do in some way, which we want to be way bigger than the club. You don't have to pay to get benefit from what we do. So that's the world. So when you get to the point that copy's wrong and club's wrong, and you put that against your ambitions for what you think is possible, and you realize that the biggest problem is your own name, it became a pretty easy decision. Who took the decision? So Tim, who's my head of community, joined in December last year. So he's been with the business for about 18 months. And in his first 30 days, we sat in Leon in King's Cross and he said, I think the name's wrong. And I was like, yep, I think you're probably right. Let's do something about it. So he wrote a brief. And I then just basically sat on the brief for months because I just was like, I think you're probably right, but I can't get my head around this. Why? Let's go into that a bit. Like, why was it so tough to action this? I actually think it's capacity. Capacity and urgency. I don't think it was that I didn't agree with him. It was important, but not urgent in your head, in your mind. Yeah. I think it just got drowned and I couldn't get the bandwidth to it. And he, as he's done, he's led the process entirely. And he's been fantastic. And it's taken him a while to get to the point where he had the space to do that. So it wasn't that I wasn't sure it was the right thing. 
Although I think I prayed that it would just disappear because it would just be really nice to not have to do it. It's just been such a massive piece of work. Because there's a trend here in terms of this long-term strategic thinking that you said you, you don't necessarily enjoy on that because that is, in my understanding, long-term strategic goal project, right? Yeah, I think the reality is that I take on way too much, which means that I am too busy to get to the non-urgent important stuff. Why do you feel you take way too much? Well, there's two answers to that. The factual answer is because my diary's a joke. So that would indicate to me that I take on too much. Yeah, but what's what the... You, what you're getting at. Yeah, <laughs> I hear what you're question. trying to do here. <laughs> that's not um, the question. It's tricky. On the one hand, our business is about the number of people we know. There is a real requirement for me to show up for the team and our community. And I find saying no to either of those groups really hard. There's clearly another thing, which is that I lean into the stuff that feels easy. And I've said in this conversation, I find hosting energizing and it's that sort of energy that I can tap into quite easily and doesn't feel very hard work for me. It drains me, but it's quite, it's quite like an easy place to go versus working out how to do a rebrand because I do now have to rebrand our brand hackers business. So I do have another one coming. Because hackers... Yeah. No, I think I might keep the name, but it definitely needs like a complete visual overhaul. Visual identity and stuff, yeah. And getting to that, I'm like, oh, can't I just have three more chats? <laughs> I'd much rather do that than actually work out, like actually do the soul searching. So there's probably some of it's procrastination. I'm asking you this because that's also something that I've heard so many times, which is like this feeling of guilt by not being there for others and thinking that this is your job. But clearly, from an outside perspective, it's not, right? Although that used to be your role to do this kind of event organizing or talking to the community or whatever, it's clear that with the team you have and, and all of that now, it shouldn't be part of your responsibilities and you shouldn't feel guilty about it. But again, that's me, from my perspective, it's easy to say. I don't quite agree. I can imagine a world where we have like new business managers. Like, yeah. So I have a job description. One of my pillars is to set the strategy, vision, and energize the team. So some of that is setting the strategy, but a lot of it is being with the team and solving problems with them. So that's a real bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. The team, yes. I'm, I'm talking on the other side. And then the other bit of it is that I have to bring in new business. Right, okay. And the way I do that is through conversations. I was more thinking about the community, the, the community 101, replying to folks who are part of your community, stuff like that as well. Yeah, I'm pretty good at, I'm like... My rule is I'll always reply to a voice note, but I'm pretty strict about calls. <laughs> okay, good rule. Okay, as of today, you've done the rebrand. Did you hire like an agency or someone to help you with the, the visual side or how did you do it? We partnered with an agency called Frontier who helped us with the strategy. And that was a really interesting process because we do this for other brands. But I think in that journey from December to whenever it was last year that we finally got moving on this, December. It was probably 12 months of me being like, yeah, 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 I'm going to get to it. I know I can do this. I know I can do this. And I'm basically realizing that I was like trying to solve a problem that was so close to my face, I couldn't see the wood from the trees. So um, really enjoyed the presence of another strategic brain to work with these people called Tom and David. And I could say to them, you guys, this is for you, help. And then in terms of visual identity, we work with some freelancers. Cool. In the end. So it was, yeah, it was really like a group effort between a lot of very bright people. 
How is it working out so far? Because you've only rebranded a few weeks ago. So we actually, right now, we're in this like weird purgatory where we've announced the new name and we are releasing our new website and switching over all the visuals and all of the content and everything next Tuesday. We had a very good week for new members, which would suggest that all of the people who thought we were just for copywriters are now a tiny bit more clear. And that's given me a good bit of like fire in my belly that I'm like, cool, this was a problem. But I have no idea. I feel incredibly confident. Our website is currently held together with bits of masking tape and is absolute shit show versus the quality of the work we do and the service we offer. So I'm very optimistic about a world where there's not such a huge gap between how we present ourselves to the world and what we actually do. Yeah, because it's funny. I knew of Copy Club before I've heard it a few times, like a few people said it's a good group and whatever. But every time I thought, no, that's, yeah, it's for copywriters only. And then when I was doing research for this episode, I realized it wasn't. And I was like, this is absolutely the wrong name. But then I realized <laughs> that you were actually rebranding. And so I was glad because I would have, I would have. It's so funny. I posted like the update on LinkedIn and so many people replied being Finally. like, no, why are you changing the name? I love the name. And then they like replied to their own comments. Saying, like, oh, yeah, oh, I get hang it. on. I've just read it. I realize you're not for copywriters. Good idea. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is really needed. In fact, I can't believe that you've grown so much with that name. Right. So that's, I'm holding on to that. I'm thinking like, but that's because everyone that's a member has been warmly referred by someone else. Like we're not really that motivated by numbers. It's much more about having high quality interactions with people who have really experienced, like really interesting experiences to share. So sometimes I think that the like obscureness of it's been helpful because it's made it like a true discovery brand. Like you've got to really discover us because we're making it really hard to find. That's really interesting. I love all of those bits. If you had to give a very specific tip to someone who wants to be like you in the sense or create a community, just to simplify it, right? Today's world, obviously. What would it be? Specifically to creating a community, what is imperative is that you only listen to what your members need and you take any ambition you had of what you thought they might want and throw it away. So this is not about building your audience. Go and be an influencer if you want to do that. If you're serious about community building, your role is a shepherd. And all you do is wander behind your sheep and like loosely help them stay in the right direction. You're not in control. And I think that's a huge mindset shift. And that comes back to why I think building communities for commercial objectives is really challenging. So last challenge of the day. Again, you have experience building a thriving community. I do have a community, but it's not in the sense of a Slack group or whatever. I have a lot of people that I'm very happy to be connected with. And I always find that there's a balance between even the people who like, would give you some feedback or say it would be great to do this. If I were to listen to everything they said, I would have a Slack group, I would have a Facebook group, I would have a circle community, I'd have course on X, Y, and Z, right? So you do need, as you said, like you do need to give them some sort of a lane to play in, but that lane is up to you to build. Yeah, so I think you do what you've done with me, which is to ask why loads. So they don't want a discourse group for the sake of it. Why do they want that Discord group? What's the objective that this is trying to solve? What's the need they have? And then you serve the need of the majority. 
And yeah, you're totally right. And I think you look at who has common needs. So we have lots of members for whom we know that we don't give a 10 out of 10 service. And that's because we can't do as good a job for a B2B marketeer as we can for a CMO as we can for a grad. We have our core profile and we build and design against our core profile. And that's how we make decisions about what we're going to prioritize. And that means anyone who's not our core profile is really welcome. But for now, we're comfortable that we're not going to give them what they want. Because as you say, otherwise you'd have um, an awful lot to do. Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just looks like nothing. It just doesn't fit your strength. And it just becomes something that you can't manage. It's like a monster. It's like a fucking gremlin. It goes in the water and then it's gone. Lodi, thank you so much. I was not expecting that much depth and honesty about everything. So I'm very, very grateful for that. I know it's not easy. No, anytime. I find it much easier to just show up than I do to... I find people who are professional really inspiring because I think that looks so hard. Yeah. It is raining. Like, I can't do that either. So what do you think marketers, marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10, 20, 50 years? I think we're all going to be okay. I don't think AI is going to take all of our jobs. So the first thing is that we can all relax a bit. And I think the only thing that's going to get us through whatever comes next is ability to do actual marketing really well. And I think you talked about it really clearly earlier in this episode, which is like the process when you have to take on a new marketing challenge, where you take a blank sheet of paper and you answer the actual question. And the question is, how do I sell more of X? And I just think so rarely in our roles do we do that thinking. We're so busy thinking about how I convince someone of something or how I fight for budget for whatever or like whatever that smoke and mirrors is. We're not actually solving the fundamental question that is the core of our roles. I think if we just get good at that and recognize that that that's the only thing we're here to do, robots aren't going to take us away quite yet. So besides Upworld, what are the top three resources you recommend listeners today? Besides Upworld, that is a challenging question. I try and make myself read a business book every month. So I've recently reread the Netflix business book, which I think is great. I think getting yourself in a book group is a really brilliant first step. I deep into Stephen Bartlett's quite well-known podcast at the moment, which I don't think is specific to marketing, but I think it gives you a really helpful way of staying on top of zeitgeist and culture in a way that's like not just throwaway. So I'm really into that. And then as a third thing, I would say that I think everyone in marketing should be once a month getting themselves in a room, whether that's with us or with Marketing Meetup or with founders, like a founders community or whatever it is, get yourself in a room with other people in your industry. I think there's only so much you can do with your AirPods in around a park. I think you've got to show up and say hi. <laughs> Great. Okay. I think it's a good way to end this uh, rather intense conversation. Um, <laughs> where can people connect with you, learn more from you? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best place. So I'm Lottie Unwin on LinkedIn. And yeah, if you enjoyed some of my vulnerability today, I can assure you there's a lot more of that to come. Yeah. That is all I will commit to. It's very awkward uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. So many selfies. So follow my LinkedIn for pictures of me every day and some musings. And then, yeah, get involved in Upworld. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.